Welcome to War Stories. I'm Preston Stewart, and this is a show where we talk about America's military history through the lens of individual acts of heroism and valor. Enjoy. Today we have the story of Private First Class Charles Roan. Roan is serving with the 2nd Battalion, 7th Marines, part of the 1st Marine Division during the Second World War. Specifically today, we're going to talk about actions on September 18th, 1944, during the fabled Battle of Peleliu. Now, I'm excited to dive into this one because we haven't talked about Peleliu yet, and every one of these campaigns, and even one, every one of these islands that U.S. forces will land on during the Second World War, is unique. There's going to be lessons learned on both sides from every fight, something we'll dive into here shortly. But the terrain or the defenses or the attack plan or the weather, there's always something different. Or, or how about the strategic value of that island or the lack of strategic value for that island? It, it's just every single one of these is – it's interesting. It's kind of wrapped up. Just the fact that you go from one island to another, you can kind of put a start and end date on each one of these fights. It's a lot – in terms of military history, it's a lot cleaner then things we'll see certainly in the first world war, but even on, on, you know, even in the European theater of operations where the lines will kind of give and take, give and take, and you'll see advances and pauses all throughout. And you have a ton of different areas rolled up into one battle. When we talk about the battle of Peleliu, Peleliu, we're talking about one Island. That's it. So you can really dial in on, on these specific battles and it makes for some pretty incredible stories. Now, to back up at the 10,000-foot view to talk about the Second World War, let, let's, let's get to September of 1944. So the U.S. is going to enter the war in December of 1941 after the Japanese attack Pearl Harbor. And pretty early in the conflict, we decide you know the end goal of the war is going to be toppling the Japanese Empire. And to get to that point, we can't just retake some of their conquered territory. We can't just you know push them out of the Marianas or... or or remove them from Solomon's, we're going to have to land troops in the Japanese mainland and, and you know, invade and conquer that territory is, is at a high level the end goal. To get to that point, we have to set the stage. And that means that we need to be within striking distance to land an invasion force. You know, we're, we're fortunate in the European theater of operations that our allies, the British, were able to hold on as long as they did to where we could start stacking men, material, and equipment on their island to push off for an invasion of France. We've got that jumping off point. We can we can stockpile and resupply and pull wounded out. We're gonna need something like that in the Pacific. We just can't draw we can't we just can't have an invasion force kicking off from Hawaii. It's too far. It's not gonna work. It's vulnerable the whole way. So we're gonna need to get an invasion force closer so we can kick off and and land troops physically on the Japanese mainland, but we also want to make sure that we can get Japan within range of our bombers. Now we're going to be bombing Japan pretty early on in the war, but I'm talking like volume of bombing, like just crank that up, you know, to the max. And we can't do that with where we currently sit with our bombers. We're able to fly some bombing missions out of China. It's great. It's an, it's nice. Um, that relationship was helpful it's nice that we can do that at all. It's not going to win the war. As the war progresses all around the world, 
we're going to see the importance of this strategic bombing capability that's playing out in the European theater. We're starting to bomb Germany day and night. It's unrelenting. It is devastating to their economy. It's devastating to their ability to, to replenish their ranks. It's, it's devastating to the population, to be frank, right? There's a lot of civilians that are killed in Germany, a lot of civilians killed in that bombing. And there's an argument to be made, is that breaking the will of the people? Is it just making them numb? Um, or is it stealing their resolve to fight until the bitter end? But if nothing else, it's destroying the the military's ability to resupply, right? Because we're destroying, you know, if you take everything else out of it, we are at least, if you level an entire city, you're going to destroy the factories in that city. So um, we can see how this is playing out. And now when we look at Japan, as the war is is ongoing, it's, hey, we don't need a couple of bombing runs a day. If we can do what we're doing to Japan, to uh, to uh, to Germany, to Japan, that could you know end the war a lot quicker. Now, it's worth noting that there was never a consideration, a realistic, honest consideration to be able to end the war from the air exclusively. You know, looking back now, we can say that we kind of did end the war from the air, right? That's we, we, the United States dropped the atomic bombs on Hiroshima and Nagasaki from bombers. And that ended the war without ever having to put American troops on the ground in Japan. Until that happened, it wasn't a realistic strategy, partially because we didn't know those weapons existed. We, the bulk of the American people didn't know those weapons existed. Um, but but that's never happened in really in the history of warfare. You don't win a battle. You don't win a war by bombing someone. You win a war by getting troops on the ground and, and occupying the territory. So that's what we're trying to do. We're trying to get close enough to Japan to have jumping off points for both of these things, an invading force and bombers. Now, to do that, we settle on something referred to as an island hopping strategy. And what that means is that we're going to bounce around the Pacific and kind of progressively move towards Japan for these jumping off points. But we're not going to retake every island. Japan, well, the Pacific is massive. Japan's presence in the Pacific is massive. They have taken and defended so many islands across the Pacific that that we, it's a daunting task to one by one remove every one of those. And remember, each one of these is going to be an amphibious landing, likely under fire, um, incredibly dangerous, deadly to, to the U.S. forces. So do we have to take every one of those islands? And the answer is no. We settle on this island hopping campaign strategy, I should say. And what that means is that we can bypass entire islands, entire island chains, if they don't meet certain criteria, right? Now, what is the criteria? It's not that it has a Japanese presence. It's not even that it has a large Japanese presence. We'll bypass major Japanese garrisons all across the Pacific. Usually, if it has an airfield, it has our attention because we know the importance of aircraft in this war. And as soon as, as, soon as there's a landing strip, the Japanese can start um, bringing in fighters, bombers, anti-submarine planes, whatever, to, at, at no, if nothing else, harass our shipping. So an island with an airfield kind of gets our attention, but we're also looking at what's going to get us kind of within range, within reach of the Japanese main island. So as we're moving, these this campaign kind of kicks off in the, in the central Pacific. Well, it kicks off in the southern Pacific. So in the southern Pacific, we're going to see Marines landing on Guadalcanal in August of 1942. It's really kind of the first major combat that U.S. forces are going to see 
on the ground kind of pushing back against Japan. Today, we're going to talk about the Central Pacific. And the Central Pacific campaign kicks off with the Gilbert and Marshall Islands campaign in 1943-1944. From there, we move on to the Mariana and Palau Island campaign. And that's what we're diving into today. Peleliu is part of the Palau Island chain. And it's like over 100 islands for reference. So there's a lot there. We group these together in the Mariana and Palau campaign kind of due to their phase in the conflict, right? Each, each one of these kind of is, is a major stepping stone from one to the next. And, and these are in that same category in terms of why they were taken and the timeline. But it's different units involved in some of these fights. And it's worth noting how far apart they are. So Saipan, we land troops on Saipan in, on June 15th, 1944. Tinian is, I think, three miles away from Saipan, which, I mean, they're, they're basically touching, okay? Guam then, that we attack in July, is about 100 miles away, 100 miles south. In the Pacific, 100 miles is basically next door neighbors. That is right up against each other. From Guam, though, you've got to go 800 miles before you get into the Palau Island chain. So, you know, for simplicity's sake, they're grouped together, but they're almost two separate fights that happen around the same time. Now, what is of note is as the Battle of Saipan kicks off, we're going to see um, the start and end of the Battle of the Philippine Sea. And that is really going to end the Japanese ability to resupply any of their islands. They kind of shot their shot in that battle. And at that point, by the end of June 1944, it is pretty clear that Japan will be fighting exclusively a defensive war. And not only that, exclusively a, a defensive war with what they've got on hand. There's not going to be a lot of resupplyability. That doesn't mean there's no resupply. It just means like we saw in Guadalcanal where it was essentially day and night. The Americans would come in by day and the Japanese would come in by night. And there was just this battle raging on, on – uh, on the island while both forces resupplied to keep their guys going. That's done by June of 1944. After the Battle of the Philippine Sea, after Saipan Falls, that's done. So we're going to see a bit of a different Japanese strategy by the time the 1st Marine Division, who is tasked with uh, taking and clearing Peleliu, gets there in September of 1944. The Japanese strategy has shifted. Remember, we were talking just a minute ago about learning lessons in these different conflicts or different conflicts, each one of these battles in the Pacific. Now, the what's, what's crazy when you dive into this is it's so easy for us today to say, well, you should have done this or you should have done that. But it's hard to tell, like, let's take the shore bombardment. So the naval ships are going to hammer Peleliu, just like they've hammered every other island that Marines and Army forces have landed on in the Pacific. And there's going to be aircraft dropping bombs too. But if that doesn't work, so, you know, if, if we go back to some of these previous battles, I think Guam might be a good example where there was a devastating shore bombardment, but the Japanese also had some shore batteries and they were firing back out at the Americans. And they, so they marked their location so we could knock those out. But then once the Americans got near the shore, there were a lot of still in place not destroy Japanese defenses. So, you know, what do you take from that? Well, generally the answer was more shells. You know, if we shelled them for a day, let's shell them for two. And you kind of saw this play out 
throughout the war. It wasn't super clear, like, you know, maybe two days of shelling will do it. I mean, that's a, that's a World War I answer, if, if I've ever heard one, right? Saw that constantly on the Western Front. Well, if, if eight hours of shelling didn't do it, what will 16 hours do, right? So now the Japanese are learning as well. This isn't a one-sided conflict, and they're an incredibly capable adversary. So when they set up these fortified positions and they, they see what's happening, there's this incredible naval presence off their shore hammering their beaches. They know they're not going to be able to stop the U.S. You know, on the beach or, or from even coming to the beach. So they stop building these fortifications that are kind of big, tall, overlooking areas and, and even firing out to sea. And they start to go to ground, especially on Peleliu and, and well, on Peleliu and especially later in the conflict when we're talking Okinawa, Iwo Jima, the Japanese will say, listen, why are we going to build this big blockhouse fortification on the shore? It's just going to be targeted by every, every naval battery out there. Why not dig and just wait out the bombardment and wait for the Americans to come inland and then we'll attack. You start to see that on Peleliu. So on Peleliu, the U.S. bombardment kicks off. Well, let me back up because there's another part, a couple other parts here that are worth sharing before we get to the actual landing. Generally speaking, when we're looking at taking a, assaulting a dug-in enemy or an entrenched enemy position or, or an enemy that's on the defensive, there's a general rule of thumb, and it was observed here during the Second World War, of three to one. You want to have three to one um, superiority in numbers to have a good chance of taking that position. We know that there's about 10,000 Japanese on the island. That ends up being a pretty accurate representation of the defenders at Peleliu. We're going to hit the beach. The The invasion force, if you will, is 28,000. Now, it gets a little tricky in modern warfare. You know, that three-to-one ratio is something we always like to throw out there, but how do you account for a pilot you know, doing gun runs overhead or a naval gunner that you can call targets to? How do you account for a radio man? How do you account for a medic? Not everybody on landing on the beach that day is is a rifleman. And that's kind of where that three to one comes into play. You know, do you count a medic the same as a mortarman? Probably not if you're taking the, if you're on the offensive, right? Well, of the 28,000 Marines that hit the beach in September on Peleliu, only 9,000 are riflemen. Now, just about all of those 10,000 Japanese are going to be manning defensive positions. So we've gotten to a point in this conflict where, you know, we can, victory on these islands isn't necessarily in question. The cost of victory on these islands will be. And there were some skeptics as we got ready to land on Peleliu saying these numbers aren't what they look like. We aren't close to three to one. Um, we might be closer to two to one. If you're, if you're considering people like radio men and mortar men and artillerymen, we might be closer to one to one. So let's bank on that artillery bombardment once we, once we near the Island. Now, again, to, to back up and talk about the movement out there, you know, it's, it's important. We have these stepping stones that we have to move throughout the Pacific and by this point in September of 1944, one of those stepping stones is in the Solomons. It's Guadalcanal and an island just off the coast of Guadalcanal called Povuvu. That's going to be kind of a training slash recovery area for, for the Marines and for the Army. 
And early in September, I think September 4th, they take off from there in order to land on Paleo. The landings on Paleo don't happen until September 15th. That means they are on a ship moving towards this invasion beach for 11 days. Think about that. You know, again, we always look at, I always look, the Second World War at the European theater in D-Day, and it's, it's you know, just a nasty, nasty move across that, across the channel. It's a day or two, or sometimes they, they might get stuck kind of circling for a period of time. But 11 days, 11 days in cramped compartments, knowing that you're just moving to, to maybe your death, landing on a horrible, horrible beach in the Central Pacific. That's crazy. Think about that. Anyways, the Navy, this invasion fleet moves towards Peleliu and begin their bombardment. They're going to bombard Peleliu for a couple days, and they're just going to hammer it because lessons learned, right? We didn't maybe get all of the shore defenses the first time, so we're going to we're going to dig in and, and really hammer it this time. Peleliu is is tiny. It's not a very big island. Um, let me make sure I have this information correct here, but it's it's like a mile across, like two miles long, maybe. It's it's small. There's not a lot of things to hit with, with your, with your planes flying overhead or with your, your naval gunnery. And pretty quickly, I mean, all things considered, it's stated that, uh, there's no more targets. All the targets have been destroyed. Now what's happened on the Island of Peleliu is that the Japanese have dug in, they've dug in very, very well, and they're not firing back at the American ships. And what that means is the U.S. ships offshore aren't aren't receiving any fire. It looks like they've destroyed everything on land. It's an easy easy conclusion to come to, right? It's probably the conclusion you want to come to, anyways. We just we just hammered them. There's nothing left there. So the Marines load up, and on September 15th, they hit the beaches of Peleliu. They're going to land on the southwest corner of the island, and they're going to be hit pretty hard on the island. There's a lot of crossfire on the beaches as opposed to kind of straight on. So think about if you're, if you're getting ready to cross a street maybe, and you think the enemy's on the other side, well, if the enemy is shooting down the street instead of straight across, it becomes very, very challenging to take cover. So if you have to take cover from your left and right, but kind of your front, like how do you do that? You see how it gets nasty quick. And there's some pretty serious casualties pretty early on during the fight on Paleo. Now, the southernmost landing beach is codenamed Orange 3. That's where the 7th Marines are going to land. The 7th Marines are tasked with sealing off the southern portion of the island. We talked about how this island isn't very big. The piece they're going to seal off is like two square kilometers. Not very big. But the Japanese are so well dug in and fortified in these positions and sometimes holding their fire until there's Americans right on top of them that clearing that two square kilometers is actually going to be a pretty nasty fight. Private First Class Charles Roan lands with the men of the 7th Marine Regiment on 15 September and then is then receives the task, he and his squad and his company, to begin clearing the southern portion of the island. The conditions are awful. So we've got kind of a limestone. I can't remember if it's if it's actually limestone or just limestone like um, like coral, kind of. It's hard. It's hard to dig in. It's not soil it's not um even sand at times it's 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 hard coral so that means a couple things it's hard to dig in it's going to kind of reflect heat a little bit like asphalt to a degree um and every time something hits that it creates shell fragments so if a bullet hits the dirt next to you cool it missed 
if a bullet hits you know coral rock in front of you, it can spray off shrapnel and kill people, wound people. It's a nasty, nasty environment. Add into that, the temperatures are around 115 degrees. The, the Marines are having trouble getting water up to their front lines. There's even stories of the water that does get up to the front lines um, being carried in, in drums, 55-gallon drums, right? Great. Those drums at one point have been used to store oil or fuel, and that strikes me as one of those things. Like You can just never clean it out well enough to, to actually use it for water. So the water is, is contaminated. How about that? That's what Ronan and his men are fighting through by 18 September. And they're pushing through this, this nasty, nasty area, taking heavy casualties. And he and his squad push out ahead of their company, not intentionally, but they're kind of making quick enough progress that they stop, they look around and they're, you know, I saw the term cut off. I don't think that, I don't think that's accurate. Um, but very quickly, as soon as they realize this, they say, hey, we need to form back up with the rest of our company. Let's start to move back a little bit. And remember I said the Japanese are dug in. They're hidden. Sometimes they they wait for Americans to pass by before they open fire. That happens here. Roan's squad is opened up on from a couple Japanese positions above them in the rocks that they couldn't see and behind them. So again, you're, you're, you're looking for the enemy in front of you. This is how... This is how this fight turns so nasty. You know, you move through an area, you think it's clear, and then bam, the enemy pops out of a hillside that you didn't know had an opening, and they're they're shooting at you at close range. They ambush Ronan and his men, laying down heavy volume of fire at close range. They start throwing grenades. Ronan is, is quickly in the fight, wounded by a grenade, but continues, continues to fight. They scramble to find cover. Remember what I was talking about? There's there's not it's not like you can dig in. So the covered positions are, are tricky at times, but he and his men scramble to find cover and they, they kind of get into a little fighting position, create a little bit of a fighting position. And before long, an enemy grenade rolls in the midst of that fighting position without hesitation, private first class, Charles Roan, 21 years old at the time, throws himself on the grenade, covers it with his body and absorbs the full force of the blast. That grenade would kill Roan, but save the lives of the four Marines by his side, who continue to fight, continue to clear out that pocket, and before long, tied back in with the rest of their company. And for his actions that day, on September 18th, 1941, 1944, excuse me, during the deadly Battle of Peleliu, Private First Class Charles Roan would be awarded posthumously the Medal of Honor. Hey, thanks for listening to War Stories. If you get a chance, it'd mean an awful lot if you could head over to Apple or Spotify or wherever you listen to your podcast and leave a review. It helps others to, to find the show. But thanks again for listening. We'll see you next time.